What I alluded to in, in the uh, communion uh, meditation was the difficulty of trying to get concepts across that are purely spiritual. You know, our minds are really good at getting finite concepts, concrete concepts, physical concepts, logical concepts across. But when it comes to the spiritual, the mind doesn't work. In fact, the mind becomes the problem in trying to get spiritual ideas across and, and ways of living life that will evoke and put us in the position to have the experiences that are the only thing that are going to prove to us who God is. It's not going to be through cognitive thought, not going to be through theology. And so Jesus has to use all of these stories, these metaphors, and then these, these deep practices full of this meaning, like communion, to try to get across the, the radical nature of what he's talking about. How if you're really going to follow Jesus' way, you, you need to take yourself out of the systems that you're used to thinking through, working through. And, and it's so difficult for us to do that. And so generally, the, the spiritual life is said to be divided into two halves. You know, the first half is about addition, and the second half is about subtraction, if you want to try to boil it down really simply. If you think about it, the first half of your life is all about building. It's about building a foundation for your survival, building a foundation for your happiness, for your meaning and purpose and fulfillment. And everything that you set off to do in life from your teen years on through mid-30s or whatever, usually by mid-30s we've gotten mugged enough, life has hit us enough, things have happened enough that we start to question everything that we have built up to that point. Whether it's religious or whether it's just other systems that we cling to, that we have trusted, that we go to for our survival and for happiness and meaning and purpose, they don't seem to be enough anymore. Maybe it's because we've gotten older. Maybe it's because we've become infirm. Maybe it's because we've had a few deaths or a divorce or whatever it is in life that hits us, we realize there's something more that is needed. If we answer that call, and that's a necessary call, just as much as adolescence is a call for the child to move into adulthood, the midlife crisis, whatever it happens to be and whenever it happens to hit hard enough to shake you out of your complacency is the call to move into the second half of life. The second half of life is about undoing all of that stuff that you spent all those decades building. It's about removing layer after layer of the identity that we think we are, that we've built up that's usually based on the roles we play and the accomplishments that we have made and the attributes that we've gathered in our personality. And we start to take all that apart, deconstruct it, let it go, so that we can get down to the bottom of the dog pile and find out what is real. Because the only way we're going to know who we really are is to first know who God is. What this ultimate reality is, what brought us into existence and to whom and where we're going afterwards, to know something about that is to start to know something about ourselves. And so the second half of life is about subtraction. It's about taking those things away. It's about undoing that attitude that we had that everything is out there someplace. Remember Fox Mulder in the X-Files? The truth is out there. I want to believe. But Jesus is telling us, no, the truth isn't out there. It's within. It's here. 
You're looking in the wrong direction. You're still trying to strive to acquire something that will make you whole, but the process has now shifted. It's about letting go of what you think you have, what you're clinging to that is blocking you and keeping you from what the truth really is all about. So there's many ways for us to look at these stages of spiritual growth, and it's important for us to have a sense of what those stages are, not that they're hard and fast, but that they give us a sense of some milestones and progression along the way that we need as we're trying to take this journey, as difficult as it is, and as alien as it is to human experience, especially us here in the modern Western world, with all the craziness and technology and everything that is vying for our attention. And so, you know, there's the four stages of spiritual growth of Scott Peck. There's the seven stages of Jim Fowler. There is the um, spiral dynamics, if you've ever heard of that. And there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. There's all these different ways of looking at development in, in human life. And there's one that I wanted to talk about a little bit more this morning. And what they're loosely called is stages of spiritual personality development. And this is actually coming from an article that Nina pulled for the Enneagram workshop that was so well done. I've kind of condensed some bits around. And I think the way that they've divided this into three stages is another great way of looking at what's going on here. Any one of these will, will work for you. But this one I think is pretty good. What they say here is that there are three progressive stages that we go through in the spiritual development of personality. And the first one is recognizing that we each have a carefully crafted sense of self that we've acquired from this first half of life from our individual experiences, families, genes, culture, and so on. The sense of self isn't bad, far from it actually. But it is manufactured, and that's the most important thing to realize. This sense of self that we get from the first half of life is a manufactured sense of self. It's what we've built, both from the traumas and the things that have gone wrong in our life, the hurts, the losses, and also from the good things, the things that we've experienced in terms of what people approve of that we do or how we act or whatever. It's manufactured. It's often referred to as the false self. And Thomas Merton, back in the 50s, was the one who started to coin, or at least make more you know, commonplace, that term, the false self. The false self only understands reality transactionally. This is an interesting concept. For example, I'm important because people like me. Or I made a mistake, therefore I'm worthless. It's the part of you that thinks you will be more, that you will be valuable, good enough, lovable, if you can live up to the goals that you and others have created. For me, my false self is tied up with doing things right and avoiding all criticism. If I'm good and make no mistakes, then I'll be worthy of love. It doesn't take long to see how living up to these messages is not only impossible, but reveals a false belief that we can save ourselves through effort. Right? Going exactly against Paul in Ephesians. Dr. Irene Alexander, psychologist and dean of the School of Social Sciences at Christian Heritage College in Brisbane, Australia. I like her already. Brisbane, Australia. Describes the false self this way. The false self is formed by fulfilling all the internalized rules and requirements to gain acceptance and approval by those we value. Society, family, and including God. We often are not even aware that we have transposed these beliefs onto God. And yet we spend our lives living according to certain internalized patterns of behavior that we think will gain God's approval. 
Sound familiar? My own internalized patterns of behavior based on my experiences, thoughts, and feelings do have real significance. They matter, but they do not constitute what is most real and important in me, my deepest identity in God. For me, prone to believing that my good behavior is directly tied to God's love for me, dismantling the false self, subtraction, means trusting that God's love goes endlessly beyond what I could earn. Only by seeing the inadequacy of the false self I've created, the false self I've created, I can begin to recognize the true self that is given by God. So when we hear it put this way, it sounds like the false self is a bad thing. In fact, the term false sounds like it's a bad thing. And if we call it the egoic personality or the egoic self, that's not much better because that to our mind sounds selfish. It sounds conceited, right? That's what ego sounds like to us. So we can't win. Whatever we call this thing, it sounds like a bad thing to us. But it's not a bad thing. It's an absolutely necessary thing for human life. The false self literally is the interface between us as human beings and reality as we experience it. Everyday life, society, jobs, family, work. There has to be an interface. Just like you have to interface between you and your computer's brain. There's an interface, the GUI, you know, the graphic user interface. That's your interface. Your false self is the interface. Or think of it like the avatar in a video game. You choose an avatar, right? You choose a character. You can't play the game if you don't have an avatar that stands in for you between you and the actual other players of the game. Any of you who have done theater, you have to have a character, right? You assume the character. You assume the costume. You might even assume the makeup or a mask to become a character in the play. You can't be in the play if you don't have the character. Our false self is the character. It's the role that we play in all of our dealings as long as we're breathing here. So it's not a bad thing. Now, it can be unhealthy. The false self can be healthy or it can be unhealthy. That depends on how much trauma and things you've had to survive in your life have created patterns of behavior that have become dysfunctional and live on even beyond the circumstances that created those patterns in the first place. We carry those things on as, as long as we want until we actually start doing the work of the second half of life, the subtraction, the pulling away of all of that layer of, of behavior and thought patterns and attitudes that we built up over the years. The false self isn't bad unless you believe it's who you really are, that you stop there, that the false self becomes not the means to another end, but the end in itself, right? Because as soon as you believe that this voice that speaks to me in my head, this role I play as father and businessman and, and mother and child, these accomplishments that I've amassed in my life are who I am, it's a complete block, a brick wall between you and any further exploration into your deeper identity, into who God really is. So that's important to understand. It sounds like it's a bad thing. It's not. We will be carrying our false self with us to the grave, but it will get purer and purer if we keep doing this work, healthier and healthier. We will put it on and take it off like a coat. When we go into 
meditational prayer, when we go into silence, we can take it off and we can just be in that deeper sense. And then when we go out to work again, we put it back on. But we understand it's not us. That's the difference between first and second half-life work, if that makes sense. So now in the article, they're going to talk about the true self. Discovering this true self beneath the false self is the second stage of personality development in the spiritual life. Instead of being cultivated, acquired, ad- added, as we did the, first, the false self, my true self is an identity, a personality that is directly given by our creator. It's not dependent on circumstances or resumes because it is much deeper than the false self. It is the inmost being spoken of in Psalm 139 that is not just my unique DNA or physical body, but my deeply known God-given identity. The true self is found in abandonment to God. It is most easily identified by remembering an experience in which we had a revelation of God's utter acceptance of us, a time when we knew as deeply as we have known anything that we are loved simply for who we are. There is nothing we can do. It is, after all, grace. The discovery of the true self is a remembering in the sense that we remember who we really are, the you that is given by God and can never be altered, diminished, or taken away. And it's interesting that the first word that was used in Greek for communion was anamnesis. Amnesia we get from the word that means to remember. Anamnesis is unforgetting. In other words, remembering, right? So to the ancients, communion was an unforgetting. Communion was a remembering of who we really are. When Jesus says, remember me, when you take this communion, he's literally saying, saying, remember who you are in me. When you take into yourself who I am, into your very cells, assimilate my essence, you're remembering who you are because you came from me and you will return to me unforgetting, anamnesis, so incredibly important to understand these nuances. But there's a third stage of personality development, and that is to be so completely identified with God that you realize the true self you see in a mirror isn't just an image of you, but is an image of God. Genesis 1.27, to see your father's likeness in your own true self. This divine knowledge of ourselves is why Thomas Merton could say that even the true self is lost in God. He didn't mean that people are annihilated in God, but that they can become so identified with God that they become his hands and feet, as in 1 Corinthians 12.27. The true self has no life of its own because whatever part of it that is true is wholly within God and therefore identified with him. Until we get ourselves out of the way, we can't see this connection. We can't even know that it's a possibility. God himself begins to live in me, not only as my creator, but as my other and true self, Merton says. You realize that your true self is amplifying your individual particularity, but that this particularity is really the divine image within you, which is why Paul could say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, Galatians 2.20. And it's also why Jesus said at John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself 
unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. He said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Do you see how when you start to crack the code of what we're talking about here, first and second life, addition, subtraction, that Jesus' way is a second half of life journey, all about subtraction, about stripping away everything that stands between you and complete unity with the Father, do you see how these sayings of his start to make a different kind of sense, what he's absolutely trying to tell us about how deep this unity goes? Jesus' way to the Father, the only way to the Father, him as way is a second half of life journey. It's all about subtraction. And it's why he sounds the way he does. You know, when he talks about you've got to lose your life in order to find it, when he talks about the first or the last and the last will be first, when he asks you and tells you you've got to hate your father and mother, which means in that language to prefer them less, to not cling to family as the be-all and end-all of your journey and relationship, when he tells us to pick up the cross, or in the crucifixion itself, the ultimate subtraction, right? All of his language is pointed in this direction. We are focused on acquiring something. We are focused on doing good. We are focused on keeping law. We are focused on trying to do something by addition to get us into God's good graces. And Jesus is consistently and always trying to tell us it's the exact opposite. Push off. Let go. Get out of the way. It's so hard to get this across. So, what does a moment, a movement from first to second half of life look like? What does movement from the first stage to the second stage look like? How can we have some kind of idea what to expect or if whether we are on this transition from first to second half ourselves? And this is the beauty of Scripture. This is where Scripture really comes to our rescue. The beauty of Scripture is that our Bible pulls no punches. Our Bible doesn't try to paint anybody as some kind of paragon of virtue. From Genesis through Revelation, every single character of the Bible is shown in all of their glory and all of their faults. We see them failing. We see them turning and slipping and doing all the things that they do, all the craziness that they do. And so Paul is going to come to our rescue here in Romans 7. He's going to show us what it looks like to be trying to move from the first half to the second half, from the first stage to the second stage. And we're going to see all the neurotic craziness that that causes in his life. And we can start to recognize it in ours and realize, okay, I'm not crazy because I'm feeling neurotic. I'm feeling neurotic because I'm actually trying to let go of certain things that have been so key to me. I got an email from a friend of mine who is a Jew who is also trying to follow Jesus, and so he's in an in interesting position. But as a Jew, you know, the law is everything. If you're going to be serious about Judaism, you've got to be serious about the law. The law is the center point. It's the, it's the, the ground zero. You know, it's the center of gravity for everything that a Jew does. And Paul is consistently chipping away at the law, saying that it is obviated that there's something else that's in play here, and that's offensive to Jews. And so you're going to find that he doesn't really like Paul too much, but he's trying to understand Paul at the same time. 
He wrote me an email and he said, uh, sorry to bother you on this, but could you explain to me what Romans seven fourteen to 25 means? I've read it in different translations and I cannot make heads or tails of it. It sounds complete gibberish to me. I think it sounds a little bit gibberish to most of us. It seems that he is saying that he sins because the sin is within him and has a mind of its own, so he's not responsible. I've even read it in the easy-to-read translation, and I still don't understand it. I'm listing my main points of misunderstanding below against each line of Romans 7, 14-25. It's basically what goes through my head when I read his words and will help you to see why I don't understand what he's saying. The issues in capitals are my main points that I really need to understand. It's kind of interesting. What he did here, he literally did that. He took every line in the passage. And then, did you ever see Mystery Science Theater? Remember that? They'd show these terrible B or C science fiction flicks, and there were little um, silhouettes of heads in the front row, and they were constantly talking and, and, and making fun of the movie as it went by. It, it was hilarious. Anyway, you had to be there, I guess. Anyway, this is kind of what he does. So... He's going to take each line and then he's going to have a comment about it or a question about it and then I'm going to have an answer. But before we actually get into that, we probably should just read the whole thing for context. So if you look at your inserts or up on the screens, Romans 7 at verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Is that clear to everybody? (laughs) Now, if you're coming from a Jewish perspective, you can see that might cause a little bit of problem, right? So let's just take it line by line and see what we come up with here. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, and, my friend says, surely Torah, now Torah is the first five books of the Bible, Torah is, Torah is the word that's usually translated as law from the Hebrew, but what it really means is instruction or guidance. Very different concept. The Jews understood that Torah was not an absolute law, a monolithic law, but the instruction and the guidance that was supposed to take us forward and evoke certain experiences and responses and realities in our lives. So he says, surely Torah is both spiritual and this worldly in its scope. Yes? No? My answer. The law was both Israel's civil and religious code, but it was wholly spiritual in terms of creating the guidance and instruction for bringing the heart of the people to their God. The civil code was designed to preserve and protect the collective tribes and nations as a stable platform to bring the people to a spiritual awareness, oneness with God, their only true hope of preservation. Paul's point 
is that this is the law's primary purpose. All physical means in the law serve this ultimate spiritual purpose. See where I'm going with that? Okay, Paul's saying it's spiritual. My friend is saying, yeah, but it's, it's this worldly too. It's physical. Yes, but the physical only ultimately serves the spiritual because they were a pure theocracy. They understood that their only hope and preservation was in God. And so everything that the law was doing was pushing them toward that oneness with God, individually and especially collectively. That was their preservation. Then he says, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. He asks, who sold him into sin? Is this about original sin? Then who did the selling? I respond, he's talking about basic human nature here. He calls it sin, but it's more than just willful unlawfulness. It's the obsessive, compulsive tendencies we all fight, the subconscious programs for survival and happiness that are put in place initially in childhood that we don't even know are running until we begin to do some interior work. The metaphor that Paul is using is one that brings the point home that we're powerless to fight the sense of alienation and disconnection of the human condition with only our minds and our wills. In Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is recognizing our powerlessness to overcome our addiction without any help from our higher power. You could call it original sin in the sense of the human condition. We're all born with it, right? But not in the sense of God's alienation from us because of what we were born to be as humans. Does that distinction make sense? Jews don't believe in original sin, but we could say original sin is this human condition the sense of alienation, the sense of aloneness, separation. This is what Paul, Paul is expanding this notion of sin. It's not just disobeying law, unlawful behavior. It's this entire human condition. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do do not understand. Why doesn't he understand what he's doing? Understanding sin as described above, as we just have, how can we understand what are not always conscious or rational choices. They are the knee-jerk stimulus response of programmed attitudes and belief systems. They run so deep as to create a worldview of which we're unaware. This is the stuff psychologists make a living working us through, right? Regressing us and taking us back. Have you ever just shaken your head at some of the crazy things that you've done? Do you ever cringe at some of the decisions you've made when you think back on them? Man, I sure do. And I think, how in the world did I do that? You know? Or I'm walking away from a conversation and said, how in the world? I just did it again. What's up with that? You know? <laughs> There's this commercial that I saw that I just thought was, was terrific. It's, it's two women in bathing suits uh, sitting by the pool, you know, minding their kids who are splashing out in the water. And one's talking about dumping Verizon. And, and the, 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 the uh, headline is, um, some decisions don't have to be permanent. And then they, they kind of go misty and they, they're looking with this kind of regret. And the camera pans to the back and they both have these huge tattoos on their back. This is summer break of 1999 or something. <laughs> What were they thinking when they put those tattoos on there? You know, Were they really aware of it? Did they understand their choices? What I am doing, I don't understand all the time. There are things in place that are running that I'm not even aware of that cause me. For I am not practicing what I would like to do. Why not? Doesn't he have a mind of his own? Is he saying that he has no control over his actions? Yes, exactly. He's saying that when he's not aware of his choices, his choices make themselves. The tail wagging the dog. 
We all do this if we're not taking a breath in the moment to think before we speak or act when triggered with emotion or fear. Viktor Frankl said that between stimulus and response, there's a space in which lies the power to choose a response. But if we're not aware of this space in real time, the space disappears and we just react as we programmed ourselves to react over time through trauma and fear. Paul says, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Sounds like a disturbed individual. Something a serial killer would say while he's killing someone, this hurts me more than it hurts you. After the damage is done, then realization and regret set in. Until we've done enough interior work and practice becoming present, mindful, and aware in the moment, we can only see the wrong choice in retrospect. We won't see the choice in time to make the one we really want to make in this moment as it's happening. Paul is describing a time of transition in himself as he was becoming more aware and present but was still struggling, falling back on old patterns. Later in life, when he writes in Philippians, he says that he has learned to be content in all things. This is the statement of someone who has done the work and become present enough to make different choices in real time, to be transformed to a new relationship with God and the contents of each moment, one that transcended mere obedience. Verse 16, But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. He writes, huh? How do the two parts of that sentence even go together? He's got a point there, doesn't he? Listen to what Paul has said. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law. I confess that the law is good. Really? How's that work? Because Paul is saying that by virtue of even having the personal conscience, Jiminy Cricket on the shoulder, right? That tells him what he's doing is wrong at all. There is a deeper part of himself that is agreeing with the premise and purpose of the law that tells him to choose differently. If he were that serial killer or sociopath you mentioned above, then he wouldn't see anything wrong with even the most heinous actions. Because he realizes they're wrong for him personally, he agrees with the law. Verse 17, So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And this is all in caps. This is one of his big questions. This is the big question, he says. Is he saying that sin is a separate entity within him? Is he saying the devil made me do it? He's saying there is a deeper identity in him that agrees with the premise of the law and is connected with God, that transcends his false self or egoic self, the programmed brain full of obsessive compulsive needs that acts along our own its own programmed trajectory until it is confronted and deconstructed through interior spiritual work. He's not denying his own personal responsibility at all. He's saying that it's more than just obedience to the law that will take him where he really wants to go. And this is the key to understanding Paul and all of his talk on the law. He's moving from first stage to second stage. All right? He's moving from first half to second half. It's not just obedience to the law. It's not just gathering a bunch of brownie points on your jacket that is going to do anything toward taking you where you really want to go. It's a completely different economy. This is what he's trying to get across. 
It is confronted and deconstructed through internal spiritual work, not denying his own responsibility, saying that it's more than just obedience to the law that will take him where he really wants to go, to unity with God, to really following the way of Jesus, to kingdom. It's the revealing of the deeper self through subtraction that is what Jesus' way is all about. That's the key. The law is a first step, like training wheels on a bike, but it won't take us very far along the way. Paul says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. He says, You said it, buddy, not me. (laughs) A little bit of his bias against Paul coming through. Once again, like that first step of AA, we're powerless on our own. The only power we have is hitching our wagon to the power greater than ourselves to take us where we really want to go. As Jesus said, I do nothing on my own initiative, but only what my Father does in me. Same idea. Nothing good dwells in me. It's the power within me, through God, through Christ, my connection with that. Then he says, that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Is he saying that he's not willing to do good? No, he's saying the opposite. He's saying that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That he still finds himself slipping into old patterns of behavior, even as he's made promise after promise to himself and to God to follow the law, to make the choices he now sees as good. Again, it's a snapshot of someone in transition, from mere obedience to full transformation. He's partway through, which is exactly where most of us are. Maybe to the end of our lives, we're always partway through. Maybe the stone never gets fully smooth. But at some point, we hit 51% and we are characterized by living this way of Jesus. And then we fall back less and less as we go. He's partway through, trying to do better, but falling back into old patterns. He's trying to show us that we can't just obey our way into kingdom. Exactly what Jesus was trying to get across in the second half of Matthew 5. It's not about obedience, conformance from the outside in, but transformance from the inside out. And the first step toward transformance is to graduate from the idea that simple obedience is all that's required, which is why he spends so much time redefining the purpose and place of law to his fellow Jews. Now Paul is going to circle back around and start to reinforce some of his points. Verse 19, For the good that I want to do, I do not do. Why not? What's wrong with him? But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Again, sounds very much like a psychopath blaming someone else for his evil actions. Verse 20, But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. There it is again. Is he saying that sin is a separate entity inside him, making him do bad things? Verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, again, disturbing, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, okay, but I see a different law in the members of my body. So, he has no control over his hands and feet, or is he talking about having no control over his sexual desires? Paul does certainly have a circular and repetitive style, repeating ideas and concepts in slightly different ways to bring the message home. Of course, this is also metaphorical and anthropomorphic, at least, in giving his body parts their own minds and wills to act apart from his own. But often that's how it feels from moment to moment. 
as we struggle with our behavior, right? And subconscious compulsions. Ask an addict or an alcoholic why they continue to drink and use, why they relapse time after time when they promise to themselves and loved ones over and over that they are done and cured, when they know the consequences of another relapse, when they've lost family and jobs and gone to jail for DUIs and yet pick up again. They are not in control as long as they simply try to obey the rules they or others set for themselves. It's only when they admit their powerlessness over their addiction and accept the help of their higher power, which includes those around them to which they finally become willing to submit, that they can find within themselves that which has always been there, a deeper connection and awareness that slowly displaces the need for the drug of choice. Paul says, I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. So, he has a dual personality then? Is it, or is it his sexual desires again, isn't it? Way beyond sex here, though it could include such compulsions, the logical mind, which he calls another law here, the one in agreement with the law of God, is no use against the subconscious, which he calls the law in the members of his body. It's literally like bringing a knife to a gunfight. If you're going to try to fight your compulsions, you know, the ingrained patterns with just your mind, with your thoughts, it isn't not going to work. That dog won't hunt. A rational decision, a logical following of rules will not change subconscious obsessive behavior patterns or even thought patterns. The only thing that will work is a dedicated process of recognizing that deeper self that is one with God through prayer, silence, solitude, mindfulness, presence, immersion in relationship, continuing to choose other than triggers would dictate over time. In other words, by following the way of Jesus instead of mere law. That's why Jesus' way is the only way to Father, to kingdom, to the quality of life that Jesus calls abundant, to the truth that finally makes us free of all the fears that create the compulsions that have sold us into sin and made us not free. Paul says, in making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He says, so now there's a law of sin as well? Yeah, in metaphor on top of metaphor, Paul is equating the law of his mind with the law of God, to which he agrees, right? And the law in the members of his body with the law of sin. But sin understood as the sum of all his fears that have programmed him to keep making choices that separate him from the people around him and the contents of his moments. Verse 24, wretched man that I am. He says no argument there. And I said, not from me either, you know, about myself as much as Paul. I've, I've lived this. I understand what he's talking about. Paul says, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. My friend says, so does this mean that he doesn't have to worry about not being able to stop doing evil because he believes Christ is his Savior? Does this mean that he can continue to do evil because his faith in Christ means that he will not have to account for his wrongdoings before God? To see how when you look at this from a merely legal position, everything changes. Man, it's the same thing we're looking at and we see completely different things. I say absolutely not. Again, just the opposite. It's a matter of method. Obedience to law or unity with God. It's the recognition that none of us can do any of this on our own. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, God's grace is a free gift. 
No one earns it so that they may boast. It's the difference between gratitude and entitlement. Obedience to law creates an attitude of entitlement, like the elder brother of the prodigal son, remember? The one who stayed home and obeyed all the rules? He's outraged that his father would welcome home the reprobate, the younger brother, and throw a party for him. The younger brother knows that he has been given a gift he could never give himself, and his only response is gratitude. Paul knows he can't follow the law. He keeps trying and failing. So he knows there's more to unity with God than just obedience. There has to be. He first has to admit his powerlessness, his inability to obey his way to God. We can't do it. It's the first step to truly being set free from the body of this death, the pattern of compulsion and inadequacy that only a conscious connection to God can accomplish. In powerlessness, the main characteristics of his life will be gratitude for the gift of acceptance he could never give himself rather than the entitlement and self-righteousness of those who believe the illusion they've accomplished everything on their own. In other words, a description of those who live in or out of kingdom, as Jesus described over and over, as in the contrast between the self-congratulatory Pharisee and the penitent tax collector in the temple. Remember that story? Finally, so then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, Okay, so in thought he's obedient to God, yes? Yes, at least in the sense that he agrees with the law and wants to obey, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. But his body has a mind of its own, his body sins, but his mind is pure. But Paul is saying that his mind is simply powerless to carry out law perfectly. But as he says in 2 Corinthians 12, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For when I am weak, I am strong. Do you see how those sayings which are so familiar to us, so famous in Scripture, take on new meaning when we look at it from this place? Paul is celebrating his weakness. He's celebrating that he has stripped away all the illusion of his own ability to do this on his own and gotten down to a place where he is now connected with God, in proper relationship with God, vulnerable, a sense of dependence, the humility that comes with that, not humiliation, but humility, understanding, the whole connection here, how it works. Following law is a first half-of-life journey. Building, acquiring, it's all about certainty, trying to be certain, trying to be right. You know, it's all about addition. Realizing unity with God is the second half-of-life journey. It's about subtraction. It's about letting go. It's about accepting imperfection, weakness, dependence, vulnerability, uncertainty, paradox, not trying to think you have to tie everything up with a bow, but accepting life as it's presented, realizing that only in our vulnerability can we see what is really real, what is true, what is liberating. Both Jesus and Paul are working overtime here. They are trying so hard to get something across that is so difficult for us to understand. And for us, reading this 2,000 years later, 
until we crack this code, quote unquote, right? until we let go of the need to find absolute certainty in every line of Scripture, we're not going to be able to let Scripture teach us as it's trying to teach us, to show us the way, to invite us, to encourage us to engage so that this truth becomes real for us personally. They're showing us literally the way to Father, the only way to Father, beginning with this tribal absolutist thinking, right? This focus on just obedience, but then graduating to awareness of unity in God's presence. If we understand this, if we understand this context, that Jesus and Paul are trying to get across to us. The difference between the first and second half of life, addition and subtraction. We can then read other passages of, passages of Scripture that will jump off the page for us. And I just wanted to close with Mark 10, verse 17. One that we've read over and over again. One that you've read over and over again. But read it now again with the eyes of this viewpoint that we've just established here. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to Jesus, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. First half of life. He's done really well. The other Gospels tell us he was rich, he was powerful, he was a ruler, he had status, he had wealth. He had acquired and added all these things. He had kept the law as well as it could be kept. And Jesus recognizes this in him. Look, he says, Jesus felt a love for him. That means Jesus knows he's sincere. Jesus sees who he is, sees what he's trying to do, but understands he's still operating with first half of life principles. He's still trying to add something. What is it that I can do? What more can I do? Because he feels a lack at the same time. He's right on that cusp, being called into the second half of life, but he doesn't really know what to do. Jesus feels a love for him and says to him, one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus is trying to point him towards subtraction. He's trying to point him to a letting go of the things that he has clung to all his life, that he has worked so hard to acquire that have become the principal means that he feels he needs to survive, to thrive, to become closer to God. And then as he walks away, Jesus looking around said to his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God and the disciples are amazed at his words why? because it's all counterintuitive they were also buying into this notion that God was blessing you if you had more and if you had more you were on the road to this thing and he's blowing their minds they were amazed at his words but Jesus answered again and said to them children how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God and they were even more astonished and said to him then who can be saved I mean wouldn't you looking at them Jesus said with people 
It is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. We are powerless. That is the reality. What we have of any value has been given to us absolutely freely by our Creator. Anything that we think that we have added to that, anything that we think we have earned, while it's necessary in this life, it comprises that false self, that interface that we need to do what we need to do every single day. If we think that's who we are, and if we have a sense of entitlement because of that, we are far from Jesus' kingdom. The process now is to let go. The process now is to strip layer after layer, to subtract, to let go of all that stuff so we get right back down to that childlike presence that just knows that he or she is loved, that he or she is cared for, for no other reason than they're sitting there breathing. When we get to that point, everything changes. That's where Jesus wants us to go. But he's saying this is the only way. There's no shortcut. There's no way to cheat. There's no way to do it just a little bit. You're either all in or you're still loved, but you're not going to know what that means and it won't transform you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Paul's humility. Thank you for his authenticity and writing exactly what was going on. Not trying to put a good face on, but just showing exactly who he is, was what he was going through, so that we can relate, we can see. Thank you for all our heroes of faith who did the same thing. Who, because they were heroes of our faith, because they were faithful to you, found the ability to accept their imperfection, to let it be seen, to let it be written down, repeated for four to 2,000 years. Help us to understand the value of that. Help us to become the same, to let ourselves be seen, to be really seen exactly as we are, to ourselves, to each other. Help us let go so that we can really find you. Thank you, Father, for giving us everything that we need for this journey. Help us to see exactly what that is, and especially your love in the midst of it all. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.